Welcome back to Echoes from the Canyons, a retrospective music podcast. I'm your host, Ash Sider, and with me once again is your co-host and my father, Jimmy Sider. And today, we'd like to thank everybody who listened to the last three episodes that we put up last week and gave us some feedback. It's been pretty spectacular the positive feedback that we've gotten from listeners so far, it just inspires us to kind of continue this project and dig a little deeper into some of these subjects. So keep those comments coming. And also a quick note here, uh, we do have uh, episode summaries posted on the show website, which have some background information on the episode and some pictures. And so if you are interested in delving a little deeper into one specific subject, uh, there's some pretty cool links. Links and, and things we'll be posting with each episode on the site. So definitely check that out. Just a friendly reminder that this podcast contains a lot of adult language and a lot of adult subject matter. If conversations about sex, drugs, and illegal activities makes you a little bit uncomfortable, or if you're underage and not supposed to be listening to this type of material, this show is definitely not for you. Okay, so Dad, how you doing? I'm doing fine, Ash. How are you doing? Ah, hanging in there, hanging in there. So at the end of the last episode, we, we mentioned that Michael was not happy about the situation, especially once Gene comes and then leaves the band. Michael is upset. He doesn't, he doesn't really like the trio thing. But that started earlier than we alluded to in the last episode because he was already having problems when David was still in the band. And let, let's, let's start there. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about Michael's role in the band. Um, if you can give us a little bit of background here because we're kind of introducing Michael. Sure. Michael's like almost a forgotten member in many publications and things I've read. Uh, they very rarely mention Michael because he sat in the back and he was the drummer. And what they maybe didn't realize is he was also the major chick magnet. All right. <laughs> okay. I mean, Michael was a very cute young man and the babes loved him because he was tall he was thin and he just was michael he was a very laid-back funny guy so at the time so what you're saying is at the time when they're performing when he was in the band as far as the fans were concerned he was one of the focal points yes okay especially to the young ladies they loved michael many 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 loved michael which is why i hung out with him mostly because he was a chick magnet <laughs> okay. And and I, I really enjoyed his personality. And in, in fact, Michael was the only one in the band who enjoyed having fun after a show. When the promoter or someone from the band that opened for us would invite us to their gig after the show, Michael and I were usually the only ones that went. Once right. in a while, maybe Chris Hillman went. Once in a while. But Michael and I always went. Do you think that you both had drumming in common? You were both drummers. Yes. So do you think that you also had that as part of your relationship? A little bit. I tried in the early stages of Michael to help him settle down and get his tempos together because I have really good time. Always have. Was born with it. 
something you're born with. And I played drums from the time I was 10 years old and taking lessons and learning how to play drums, reading a chart. That's where I come from. And I did that until I was in high school. And then in high school, I played in the orchestra. And that was also reading a chart. You know, I played drums in, in the orchestra at, at school. And, and did you guys connect on that? A little bit. Michael's deal was always a feel. He was a feel drummer, if you understand that. I think you do. Sure. (laughs) He And he had an incredible bass drum foot. His right foot was incredible. The way he played bass drum was solid. It was right on. And he got so much shit from David always about rushing and dragging in the recording studio, mostly. And you're rushing and dragging. Well, not really. He was playing the feel. You guys are playing the music and singing, maybe, in a pre-vocal vocal session. Michael was playing to your feel, which may not have been like a metronome would have played it, but the Birds music didn't really require a metronome. Right. No, it's more of an organic It's sound. an organic feeling thing. And Michael played that. That's what he played. And at first, I was like, dude, oh, man, you're terrible. But then I, I started listening to him, and I started realizing he's not terrible. He just is not that familiar with a drum set yet, because he just got a drum set the first time they had a TV show booked where he had to go with a set of drums. <laughs> right. And we're, we're going to do a lot of episodes on Michael Clark, and especially covering the earlier phase of you, you yes. working with the birds. But just, just real quickly here, can you <laughs> explain how Michael learned to play drums what he told you yeah the original rehearsals which i wasn't there for but i you know from michael's mouth to my ears they had an apartment in hollywood somewhere i don't know who lived there but that's where they did their initial rehearsals and the boys would play acoustic guitars i'm not sure how hillman played because he you know he played the bass electric bass so i don't know how he did it but michael played on telephone books and boxes (laughs) okay All right. And sometimes not even with drumsticks because he didn't have drumsticks. They didn't have money for drumsticks. So all of a sudden they get a recording deal with CBS and they go in the studio. And what I heard from Terry Melcher, who produced them for CBS, was basically when he heard them rehearsing in the studio before they were going to do a track, he couldn't believe that they weren't that good on their instruments. Any of them, except McGuinn with the 12-string. David, rhythm guitar, mm, okay. Chris with the bass, okay. But Chris was also not a bass player before the band. Right, right. Yeah, I've read that. He played mandolin, which is a four-string instrument or an eight-string instrument, depending on what you're playing. Well, that's the same basic configuration of a bass. So Hillman's bass playing was always melodic. It wasn't driving bass, really. So that's what Michael had to play to. And when Melcher heard that, he just couldn't buy into it that that would be how they would start their career by recording a hit. He knew that they couldn't do that. So that's why he hired. That's why he hired the session guys from Hollywood, which Hal Blaine on drums, Larry Nechtel on bass, Leon Russell on guitar and keyboards, and Mike Dacey on guitar. But I'm assuming that after those sessions, after the first couple records, with all the touring, Michael did improve. Well, yeah. Michael and the rest of the band played on the rest of that first album. The session guys recorded maybe three songs 
that first day and I don't know if all of those songs were on the record or not. I know Mr. Tambourine Man was because that was the one that Terry focused on and he allowed McGuinn to play on it because it was his feel on the 12 string that the song was based around and he knew that. But then after that session, those sessions were over, the band played on the rest of the record. So they had to learn how to play. Right. (laughs) Michael was learning how to play the drums. And he and David got into a lot of arguments about it because David was playing rhythm guitar most of the time. And it wasn't Hillman and Michael getting into it, the two guys who were keeping the rhythm of the track. Right, the rhythm It was David and Michael. And David would say shit to him that most people wouldn't take. And Michael would go for him. When I first went to the studio, the engineers told me, yeah, try to keep them from destroying the setup and the microphones. What are you talking about? Well, they got into a huge fist fight. Really? Oh, yeah. Was yeah. this, Was this? so you were there for this? I wasn't there for that one, no. Okay. I was there for a later one, but I wasn't there for that one. <laughs> okay. But it was famous amongst the engineers, and they were just like, yeah, we had it set up like it's set up now with the baffles between everything. And Michael dove over the baffles and went for David. Okay, so they they, <laughs> they <laughs> okay. had a, a tenuous relationship at best. They had a tenuous relationship because David would always push Michael's buttons, knowing full well that they picked him because he looked good walking down the sidewalk. They didn't know if he could even play drums, but he did. And he had played in coffee houses in San Francisco, playing bongos and other things, but never behind a full set of drums, as I was told by Michael. The first full set of drums was the set that they had for TV shows. And when you play a TV show in those days, it's a lip sync. So you're not really playing. You're just, <laughs> you're just pretending. You're just play. being beautiful. You, you know, you're being beautiful for the camera. And Michael was a beautiful guy. And the chicks loved him. And out of that, he would actually play on the lip syncs. And the live shows, kind of a different deal. Because in those days, remember where we were in the 60s, the PA system sucked. So could you hear the bass drum? Mm, only if you played it really loud. Could you hear... The drums, really, with a bad PA? Not really. And the boys all had Fender Dual Showman amplifiers, which they turn up to 10. Right. So, so they- what, the, what the audience could hear would be a bass, a rhythm guitar, and a 12-string. And Michael's in the back. And can you hear him? Not really. You really couldn't hear him. But he's playing anyway. He's playing his ass off back there. Then, okay, do maybe four or five gigs, go do a couple of TV shows in Hollywood, which they did every one there was. Right. And with every record, there was five or six TV shows that CBS set up for them to do in Hollywood. I don't think until maybe, not in Michael's era with the band, did they ever have to play a TV show live. Okay. That was really live. I don't think so. So he learned by playing along, but he wasn't... Yeah, he wasn't. It was a tape that CBS sent over. And just to clarify this for people that maybe haven't listened to the other episodes. So what we've talked about actually a few times now is that the birds didn't really rehearse. So outside of actually doing the their recording for their for the records and live shows, they didn't rehearse. So Michael wouldn't have had a ton of time with the band to play outside of recording and playing live shows. Exactly. And in the beginning, Michael lived in a small apartment and he couldn't have drums in his small apartment. Okay. He had to come to CBS studios where we were going to record to practice playing drums. And he did a lot of times when the band wasn't there, but then you have to have something to play too. I played drums since I was 10 and there's nothing worse than 
somebody coming in and go, hey, play something for the aunt and uncle. Really? <laughs> Drums by myself for the aunt and uncle? Oh, <laughs> oh, good. Thank you. What do you do? A drum roll? Oh, duh. okay. A paradiddle? I mean, what do you play? You so, little, little drummer boy the shit out of that. That's a, drummer, a drummer playing by himself needs music to play to in your headphones, which we can do today. You couldn't do that in those days. It wasn't possible. You could put a record on and play to that, but if you live in a small apartment in Hollywood, you can't do that. Michael will be back playing on his telephone book and his boxes, which is how he learned to keep rhythm. And he actually was very good at it. When I look back on it, Michael did a great job for the era. He wasn't Ginger Baker. He couldn't do a huge drum solo. Very rarely ever hit the tom-toms, if at all. It was snare drum, hi-hat, cymbal. And that was it. But the Burns music, if you listen to it, it didn't lend itself to a huge drum solo. Until the later Birds with Gene Parsons and Clarence White made Eight Miles High into a drum bass solo. Right, right. Yeah, that's... Yeah, okay. That's- Got some killer but that stuff never happened before. That was years and years later. When Michael was there, it, he never played a drum solo and didn't want to because he really couldn't. He hadn't ever practiced that because there was no reason to practice that. Well, and the earlier songs, so the songs that he would have been playing in his time with the Birds, I mean, they were different back then anyways to, to what would come later. Then another thing that maybe we should talk about here is on the songs, especially before Notorious Bird Brothers, like leading up to Notorious Bird Brothers, there were already some problems with Michael not enjoying the songs or not liking the direction. He didn't care for the sound of the 12-string guitar. <laughs> okay. Okay? He's let's, in put the it, wrong... let's put it right where it was. He's right? in the wrong band. Yes. But he looked good. So they said, oh, there's a guy. Let's make him the drummer. So he did all those albums and never liked the 12-string. Well, I'm not sure if he disliked it at the very beginning, but he got to where it was always the same. And I had to listen to every show. And I'm telling you, that happened to me days into my career with them. It was always the same, except many times Roger was out of tune. So on those times, it wasn't quite the same, but it was still (laughs) annoying sometimes to always hear the 12-string do the solos. Because David didn't ever play a solo, really. Right. I mean, sometimes he did, in a couple of songs he did, but it was always the 12-string doing the solos. And it got it gets annoying, and it gets old, fast. And that's where Michael was coming from with that. He would look at me when Roger was playing his solo. I would get the Michael stare, and he would just be like, oh, man, really? <laughs> you know? He didn't care for it. Did, did he write any of the songs? I don't think so. They gave him credit on the instrumentals that they did. They did a bunch of instrumentals in the studio that never really made the albums, but they made box sets later in, in life. Gotcha. Right? Um, but they would give him credit on those. So he had, I don't know, 10 songs maybe that he got credit for writing. I was wondering that because later on, he ends up owning the birds for a while, like by default. Yes. Until Crosby takes him yes, back. Yes, exactly. Because he was the only one performing He as was the, the only birds. one performing and he hired Gene <laughs> yeah. to go out with him. And Carlos Bernal, who was my friend that I introduced to the birds, 
and John York right. played with him. Right. Okay. And and some others. And they got an agent in New York to book them as the birds. Yeah. This is way later. This is way later. Like in the 80s, right? Way later. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. And then finally someone woke up and went, whoa, you can't do that. Well, but he'd been doing it to stay alive. Yeah. And McGuinn isn't performing as the birds and neither was David. Michael is a survivor and always was. And he had charisma that none of the guys had. Michael had. It was amazing. But he was in the back, so you couldn't see him, but he looked great. And he handled himself like that. He handled himself with a certain attitude. So, you know, Michael was a special guy. And in those days, those songs on the first two, three albums, no drum solo required, you know? I mean, barely drums and then shakers and tambourines. And I played some of that with Michael. So that's what it was. That's what the music was. He played to the music. And the Younger Than Yesterday album had a bunch of strange songs on it also that were 6-8 and weird time signatures and Notorious Bird Brothers had similar things on it. What song? The one that sticks out for me is a Dolphin Smile. <laughs> which you've mentioned before. Yeah. Okay, so which is a, Which is a 6-8. It's written in 6-8 time. And that's not necessarily rock and roll. 6-8. It's what? Waltz? It's Waltz double timed. Yeah. Okay. Six eight three four is waltz. So six eight is twice a waltz. So it's eight notes, and they all kind of had trouble playing that. Uh, they can say what they want. It was difficult for all of them, but for Michael, it was especially difficult. And David bagged on him big time, and he got a hold of uh, Usher after a session and was like, "Can we replace Michael on uh, drums?" bring in another drummer and Gary's like yeah you really want to do that piss him off I mean you can that was on Dolphin Smile well that was the original intention was Dolphin Smile and uh, Triad but I believe they did several other tracks also you had mentioned that David was apprehensive about switching Michael out on a previous, like on our last episode he was apprehensive about it because he David's goal was to get out of CBS right and he didn't want to piss them off. So he's trying to write a line between yes. pissing off CBS, but he knows that Michael can't do these songs, or or at least he, he thinks they can't do them how he right. wants Well, them. I was there when Jim Gordon tried to do those songs. Okay. And he had trouble as well. <laughs> okay. Just so you know. He didn't walk in there and go, yeah, okay, here we go. Bye, bye, bye. First take. No, that didn't happen. Maybe 10 takes before he got it. And in the end, Michael's version and Gordon's version were almost exactly the same. Really? Absolutely. Has Michael's version ever come out? I don't know. I don't know whether Usher saved Michael's drum tracks. Right. Okay. That would only be an Usher situation and he's gone now, so I don't know. Let me ask you this. So when that was happening, was Michael pretty pissed about that? Oh, absolutely. Sure he was. Because A, he didn't get paid for the sessions and B, they didn't really tell him until the day of the session. I mean, imagine you've taught yourself how to play drums and be on the sessions and you're doing fine. And all of a sudden, they bring in another drummer to replace you your tracks you've already recorded these tracks you already had trouble with other songs where the time signature was a little weird and they bring in another drummer to replace your tracks yeah i mean of course you feel bad you feel like what the fuck and did he blame david for that he kind of blamed usher and david for that because it was usher's fault in reality because usher said sure i could bring somebody else in and then he went oh fuck michael signed to cbs He's a signed member of the band, all right? He's one of five. Yeah, that makes it weird. It does make it weird, and he got slapped for it. 
by CBS. Really? Absolutely. He's a band member, and they didn't use that, and they didn't tell him they were going to do that. He kind of had an idea when he left the day before they did it. He kind of had an inkling that that would happen. And then the next morning, Jim Gordon's drums showed up. It was pretty obvious. Oh, they're going to replace Michael's tracks. Oh, my God. Well, they did it. David was obviously okay with this because he had suggested well, he, it. Well, yeah, David was okay with it because he thought that Michael played a shitty part. But in reality, when it was all said and done, Michael played a great part. And Jim Gordon had trouble matching it. Never mind playing a better part. He had trouble matching what Michael played. I was there. I sat through the damn session. I know what happened. And Usher had trouble. You know, he didn't say anything to me because he knew. I was against this. I told them the day before. I said, this is a mistake. And what did the, what did Hillman and McGuinn think about it? I don't know. They knew about it because Usher told them. But I don't know what they thought about it. They weren't there. They oh, they weren't at the session. They didn't come in. No, no, no. It was Usher and, and uh, David came in for a while, uh, and, but then he left. So it was Usher and uh, Jim Gort, just the two of them. And I was there. And, and it was kind of a shit show. He didn't do anything that Michael didn't do. You know what I mean? He made the same mistakes that Michael made in the track yeah but because he was a different guy david was uh, happy with that what wow. can i say michael didn't like triad at all he thought it was a shit song michael also thought that whenever mcguinn did a ct 102 whatever the fuck those names of those songs are <laughs> all right whenever mcguinn did his outer space songs that was just the 11th song to fit on the album right michael was just so against it because a lot of times the band wasn't really playing on those tracks it was a synthesizer, it was a this, it was a that. On McGuinn's songs. Yeah, on, on that McGuinn, Armstrong, Aldrin, and whatever, okay, <laughs> flying to the moon bullshit song. Because those are the only songs in that Roger could write right. at that time until he linked up with Jacques Levy. And then he wrote some really good songs with Jacques Levy. But Jacques was giving him the, the ideas, maybe. I was never present for that because they did it away from everybody. But Michael just would shake his head, and I could just see the blood boiling in his brain. Okay, going, oh, fuck, not another one of these. And it would be straight time, or he'd be playing rim shots on fours to the song, which is a no-brainer. And, and bass drum, and that, that would be it. And, you know, they used the metronome for time. So Michael just had to play to the fucking metronome. And it was, it was weird, okay? It was very weird. Science. <laughs> science? <laughs> it's science. Yeah, it, it was science. It sounds like McGuinn's early, early well, contributions you know, were yeah. very scientific I mean, I'd approach. have to go through all the tracks to really tell you the, the ones that Michael hated. Uh, but <laughs> there were quite a few well, that he was not pleased with. That's one of the things we can post on the website. Here's some tracks that Michael hated. Yeah, he got tired of playing Mr. Tambourine Man early on. McGuinn probably plays it every day, even today, 50-some years later. Yeah. I think I think that's kind of universal though. The first big hit is something that a lot of bands really get bored of and don't want to play yeah, anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Roger makes up new words all the time when, oh. you, when you hear those songs. He has like fifty verses to some of those songs that he can sing at any time. Some of them are real. Some of them he makes up. But you know, <laughs> and it's because of getting tired of playing it. Sure. I mean, come on, playing Mr. Tambourine Man every day of your life for the rest of your life sounds like heaven. really oh, <laughs> not easy. And Michael, the look he would give me sometimes was just like, oh, man, not again. So after, after this this issue with Gordon coming in to play the two tracks and then Michael's drum tracks being removed, what was the vibe? What was Michael's response to this? Michael used it as a positive, believe it or not. He went home, called me, and he wanted his rehearsal set of drums taken to his house. He had a, another older set of drums. 
So I had them taken to his new apartment and he practiced like a motherfucker. He really did. He practiced every day for hours and they were finished recording. So he never got to play on a track again in that album. But when they were out there playing as a trio, you could tell, I could tell that Michael had put some work in. So he continued to perform with them. Yes, he did. So, you know, I know some places and some Wikipedia, other places say different things, but they weren't there. But Michael did his due diligence and he learned and taught himself some new practices with the drums. Michael Clark had an incredible bass drum foot always that he didn't need help with. What he needed help with was doing a fill. Da, 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 da. He hardly ever hit the floor tom or the up tom. Those heads were brand new and they remained that way most of the time. (laughs) Okay. You you could tell they were never hit. But, you know, hi-hat, snare drum, ride cymbal, and bass drum. That was Michael. And he had taught himself pretty well because the band was a trio, sort of, because David was gone. And let's talk about that because Hillman and McGuinn fired David. Correct. Around the same time. And Michael, what was his role in all of that? Because Michael was the youngest of them all and the least experienced of them all at the beginning, they always treated him like he was a kid. Oh, you don't need to know that. And in reality, he didn't want to know that. He didn't want to know the politics and all the bullshit. He was just Michael. He was having fun. Yeah, he seems like a really down-to-earth guy. He was a really down-to-earth guy. He was really fun to be with. We had a great time. He used to call it like he saw it with McGuinn. And he would just mouth to me, another 12-string solo. (laughs) How many more of these do we have to hear? Okay. And the reality, if you ask Crosby, he might say the same thing, even though he's more political than Michael. But I know he felt that way. Right. So basically, when Crosby was fired, right, um, Michael wasn't involved in that then. Michael wasn't. I don't think they involved him in the fact that they were going to fire him. I wasn't there because they flew back to L.A. We were on the same plane, but we didn't talk. Michael was sitting behind McGuinn and Hillman, and I was sitting across from Michael. And he came over and joined me for a while to just talk, but nothing about what was going on, just chicks and all that stuff, because he had a bunch of chicks in L.A. that were giving him trouble. And, you know, McGuinn and Hillman were talking. Now, they might have been planning whatever they were going to do. My belief is that the firing took place on a Tuesday, re-returned back to L.A. on a Monday. And they had to sort out what would happen if they fired David. What would happen to the band's financial situation with Spectre? What would happen with CBS? They had to sort that out. So they were doing that. I was in the office on Monday turning in receipts, and they weren't there. I never saw any of them at all, you know, except I sat down with Spectre and just filled him in on what happened in San Francisco. And when's the next time that you saw Michael after David had been let go? Probably a week or so after that. He called me. He said, so they fired Dave. I said, yeah. Did they tell you? He said, yeah. Hillman called me, told me. I didn't know they were going to do it so fast. I thought they were going to wait a while, but they did it. So he must have been aware that something uh, they, was going to happen. Yeah, he knew that he knew that something was going on, and he knew that I that I got hit by David, and that was the final straw, supposedly. But in reality, that wasn't really the final straw. The final straw was just David's entire attitude at the time, not wanting to work out of town, passing up on gigs, not going to a TV show. All, the, all that stuff. All that stuff. I mean, I'm on a TV show because David didn't go. And Gene played the TV show. I'm there because Hillman didn't show up. And those days, Hillman lived like somewhere way out past Malibu Beach. What's that canyon? The other canyon that's way past Malibu. He lived out there. Hillman was far away from L.A. 
He was almost in Ventura. I guess he, he was like a Ventura. ranch or something. Yeah, he was in Ventura County, basically. So a TV show. David's not going to be there. Gene's going to be there. I'm not going. And this, so this would have been in the when Gene briefly came back. Yeah, when Gene briefly came back, he did a TV show with us where it was a lip sync, of course, and I played bass. <laughs> Please tell me that there's video evidence of this. There's a video evidence. The show is on video, but I have a I have a from the uh, the kinescope uh, a shot of me playing bass because I had my shorter haircut. Is is this on YouTube? I think I saw it on YouTube. Oh, yeah. I'm gonna see if I can find this. If if, yeah. if I can find this, I'm gonna link this. Okay. On the site. Anyways, I didn't mean to cut it's you a, off there. It's a classic. I mean, it was a classic show. I didn't want to do it, but the contract said four birds. The after contract, so I became number four. And there's one show, and I don't remember which one it is. There's a drummer playing that I don't even know who it is. <laughs> really. Yeah. Honestly, I'm playing and a drummer. So they, they were getting really lax about showing up for these shows. The real band. And this was a network show, by the way. It's, but Michael was there at that one with Gene. Yes. Okay. Yes. And that would have been before going on tour. That would have been before the Gene Clark single performance tour. At, <laughs> in Minneapolis. Yeah. So Michael went on that tour as well. Right. But um, he went to New York and played as a trio. He with, went to New York, played as a trio, and then when you got back to L.A. He was pissed. Okay. He was pissed. For all I know, he could have quit on the airplane or when he got back to L.A. I don't know. But that that was it, though. He didn't continue on? No, he continued on for a little bit. We had some gigs in L.A. down at the beach. It was There was a big joint we played. Um, I think it was in Santa Monica on the beach. I don't remember the name of that place. It was a huge place. And it was an up-and-coming joint that was in business for Six months, maybe. <laughs> didn't last. But uh, I think he played there as a trio, and then he played somewhere else as a trio. I don't remember where. I'd have to, if I can get my diaries, I can tell you all that. But then he was getting more and more angry about it because he didn't dig it, and he wanted that fourth person. And the fourth person that was going to come would be Graham Parsons. Right. But in the meantime, Michael quit. And he and, quit. He wasn't fired. No, he was not fired. Okay. Not that I know of. I don't think that happened. Well, I mean, he you would assume that if he was fired, he would have told you. You guys were pretty close. Yeah, he would have told me, but I don't think he did. Unless he was trying to save face and said, no, 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 no. Michael wasn't like that. He didn't give a shit. <laughs> he so, didn't care. So, Michael didn't care. Michael was a free spirit and always was a free spirit. And he had other offers, which I didn't know. Yeah, but basically, he did have other offers. I mean, obviously, he had other places to go. Yeah, he went. He went on to play with other people. Yes, he did. Obviously, he played with the Burritos. He played with well, and then he had his own Birds band later on. I don't even know what the dates of that was. Yeah, and they in the eighties or late. 70s, but I have 80s. I have that promotional photo somewhere in my collection. Do you? Yeah, sure. Oh, very cool. Artists and agents, or whatever it was called in New York, with Gene and he and Carlos and two guys. I have no idea who they are. <laughs> <laughs> it gets it gets really like you were saying earlier. It gets really incestuous. 
yeah, when you're looking at these bands. Yeah, because they know each other. And they just like, it's a phone call. Hey, man, you want to come play with us? Right. And, you know, you go and you play with them. That's all. It all kind of got a little murky in there because I was busy booking the band. I was busy with the agents. I was busy doing all everything because I did everything myself. Michael, I think the last time I saw Michael during the Birds era was at the office when he, I was there and he came up and he said, yeah, yeah, I'm out. I'm out. Finally, I'm out. I don't have to listen to, I don't have to listen to the birdie playing Mr. Tambourine Man anymore. Okay. He told me, he said, McGuinn will be there till the end. He's the birdie. He'll be the last one out. And he was in reality. But meanwhile, Michael took the name and started working as the birds. <laughs> what can I say? Yes, he did eventually find his way back to <laughs> he, that. He got it, you know, and then until someone stopped him, I think. David. Yeah. David uh, eventually took that back over. Yeah, but he, because David, who didn't like being a bird and was against that whole thing, he owns the logo. Right, right. So Imagine that. <laughs> Dave, you're such a putz in many ways. <laughs> but okay. he did this way later. He went back. Oh, he did it way he later. He realized, but, oh, wait. But he did it. Yeah. Okay, he did it. Yeah. And, and and then now he's sold all his publishing. So th- someone else has Triad, all of his catalog. He recently sold. Yeah, that's right. He, he recently, recently sold, sold all of his rights. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Which is kind of weird, but, you know, he needed money, I guess, because they can't work. They, nobody can work during COVID. So yeah. it makes sense. These people make a lot of money touring, so and they have expenses. So this, um, just re- really quickly here, because I had read that Michael, after leaving the birds, breathed. Briefly quit music and moved to Hawaii. That's true. <laughs> so, what do you know about this? What do you, I mean? Well, he had a babe over there, first of all. Okay. Who had a place to live, and she wanted him to come with her. As I said, Michael was a chick magnet. He had lots of women who loved him. And uh, unfortunately, most of them were in L.A. or had moved to L.A., and some of them were after him. So you mentioned earlier that he had some problems with his the women he was seeing in L.A. Yeah. And and that's probably because they all moved there, and I'm assuming yeah, there was some conflict. They all moved there, and they were all, uh, Michael, you know, he couldn't even go to the Troubadour and sit on his bar stool and talk to Gene anymore because they all knew that pit stop for him. So they would all be there. And Michael, of all the guys, didn't have all the money that they all had from right. the publishing and songwriting and all that stuff. And I don't really know what he walked away with. You know, the chick in Hawaii he had been talking to, I knew he had been talking to her for a while. And finally, he just said, hey, you know what? I'm out. And he went to Hawaii. You know, what's interesting about this is I'm just realizing as you're saying this that I pulled a Michael Clark. <laughs> I was living in L.A. <laughs> yeah. I was living in L.A. doing whatever I was doing. I needed a, I needed a change. I needed to get out. Yeah. And I just up and moved to Hawaii, to Oahu. I yeah. Don't, I don't know if he was in Oahu. Michael wasn't in Oahu. I think he was on um, Kauai or Maui. Not sure. Okay. But the chick had had money and had a really nice place, and Michael was going for it. And all he did was kick back and paint. So a lot of the paintings that you see of Michael. Right. He's a painter. He's a painter. Real quickly here, too, uh, we are going to link on the episode summary on the website. We will link Michael's paintings because they're they're really good. And definitely check those out. We'll link to some of the sites that show some of that work. Um, He was a pretty talented painter. Yep. And he loved it because it relaxed him. And he was in Hawaii doing that. And then 
the burritos called him because they needed a drummer. And Chris knew that Michael was just hanging out doing nothing. So he called him. Right. Which in my mind, the fact that Hillman reached out to Michael. It kind of says that he probably didn't fire him. Exactly. Thank you. To me, that says... He probably did not fire him with McGuinn. You know, I'm wondering if this narrative of, oh, and then I fired him, and then I fired him, and then I fired him comes from McGuinn, who also claims that he was in charge of everything. Yeah, well, he claims he fired me, too, and I quit days before he claims he called me. Really? Yeah. I quit in the dressing room. Well, I I didn't say anything. I just, I took all of my percussion equipment off the stage, packed it up, called a a trucking company. They picked me up from the gig. I went to the airport, I put it on a plane and I flew home. Does that say I'm... Does that say that... (laughs) Does that say I quit? (laughs) I didn't, uh, I didn't kind of have to. Roger, you can say what you want that you fired me. You didn't. Michael was always a very sensitive, deep-thinking guy, always. And because he was ignored a lot by the media and by the band, because he's just the kid, and they all know the story that he was hired because of the way he looked, but he taught himself to play the drum. And he played fine for that band at that time. That's all. Later, he was replaced by Kevin Kelly. Okay, which is which is actually the next part of this series yeah. that we're doing Okay, um, on, on seasonal migrations. The yeah. next part is going to be about Kevin Kelly. I don't know if he's enough to take up an entire episode. Doesn't seem like he. <laughs> it doesn't seem like he was uh, very influential or very. No, he wasn't. Not my favorite kind of player, actually, or guy for that matter. He was. He just seemed a bit immature. But he was there for Sweetheart of the Rodeo, right? He was there for Sweetheart of the Rodeo, which was a country album. Right. But today, Sweetheart is a pretty popular album. I don't know if it was in its day. Yeah. Well, it wasn't in its day. Because, because why? Because it because wasn't. the audience that the birds had were a pop rock audience, and all of a sudden they're country it's pop like, rock. It's a rock and roll faux pas to do that, huh? Yeah, Just, and it's like it wasn't accepted by the country fans, and it wasn't accepted by the bird fans. Right? Really, it is a really good record today. It is. Then it wasn't, and the main reason it is today is because of Graham Parsons, because he was the guy, and he was. Mr. Country. And when they got to the point, Michael laughed at this because he wasn't there, but he heard about it, that uh, McGuinn and Hillman were trying to match Graham's voice to replace it because he couldn't be on the record, according to, to CBS and his attorney. They weren't going to put him out there because the his former producer was going to sue them. So McGuinn and Hillman were trying to replace his vocal, and they were listening to Graham while they sang the vocals. <laughs> And Michael got a kick out of that. Michael just loved that story. He he was like, really? Michael's a good guy. He was a good, always a good guy. Yeah. Well, I mean, luckily you had a chance. You worked with him again. Yes. You got to work with him with the burritos, right? Yes. But by then, ah, Michael had gotten into the evil white powder and he wasn't quite the same innocent young man. I mean, he smoked marijuana before and he probably did some pills, but he wasn't into heavy drugs at all. And cocaine is considered a heavy drug. And Michael got into that probably when he was in Colorado, not sure, but he was a different guy after that. 
And you know, the next time I saw him when he joined the Burritos, he had a different swagger about himself. He was a little bit older. He wasn't quite as cutesy as he was before. And he just, he got too much into the white powder. And it was, you know, Graham would tease the whole band with that, except for Sneaky. Sneaky wasn't even close to doing any of that stuff. <laughs> right. And I've actually met him. He seemed like a pretty straight-laced guy. He's a great guy. Yeah. Sneaky was a wonderful guy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Sneaky was okay with having Michael in the band because it was another rock and roll legend. So you had two of them in the band and maybe two and a half with Graham yeah. because he had been in the Birds, but he was no longer in the Birds. And uh, Sneaky and uh, Chris Etheridge. Etheridge, that, right. That was the original Burritos. We're going to kind of, I mean, obviously we're going to get into burrito stuff. That's got to happen. But, you know, thanks for bearing with us, everybody listening out there, because it does get murky, like my dad just said. It does get really murky in this transition because they kind of overlap. It's not so cut and dry on what happens when and, and how this band kind of transitioned into these new members. But basically what we're going to do in this ongoing series here on the different lineups is we're going to kind of just jump through a few more of them because they all happened relatively quickly. So next week we're going to do uh, Kevin Kelly and then we're going to segue into Graham on the following episode. And that will put us in a place where we can kind of set this transition down for a second, move on to some other stuff. And then loop back around to it because obviously we're gonna want to discuss that band at length because of the Sweetheart the Rodeo album and sure all of that sure well, you know it was it was a tough time and the agents didn't quite know what to do yeah that sounds like a nightmare daily we would talk daily about different shows that we were offered and we were offered the shows but what was the band who was in the band and do you have photos of that band would be their question. Right. Which we talked about that. Yes. We've talked about that when we talked about the CBS photo session. Yes. That this is a constant problem with the birds. And we don't mention dates a lot on this show. Uh, not really, because it's kind of hard to, to remember all that. But if you go back and you actually look like I have as producer on this, and I've had to go and look at the dates to kind of see how this all lays out just to you know tell the story properly. And what you find is all this stuff is happening in such a short amount of time. I mean, we're talking months sometimes. I mean, you know, Gene's return, that, that was only a few weeks, six weeks. Maybe six weeks. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was, and he did a couple of TV shows in L.A. And he did the one concert and right. rehearsals. That was it. Right. It's it's six weeks of that lineup and then it changes. Yeah. You know, and then Graham's there. He's not there for that long either before he leaves. Kevin Kelly's not there for very well, long. Well, but I took Graham to Europe once for a tour. We toured in the U.S. and then he went to Europe and then we came back. But he had met Keith. So that bromance was happening. And then uh, I booked the next tour to Europe in conjunction with... <laughs> with the South African tour, which I had booked. And then I had a car wreck and I was in the hospital. And that's where they lost Graham while you were And that's when Graham stayed in London, continued to get into drugs. And I'm sitting in the hospital with no drugs <laughs> on the phone going, what? Graham? Oh, no. Graham's not. Oh, what are we going to do? Oh, woe is me. So, I, you know, I had to put all that shit together for my hospital bed because Larry Spector was incapable of doing that because he had never done it before. He didn't know what the band chemistry was or how that worked. And I did, but I was in the hospital like 
what could I do? Yeah. And yeah. once again, Spectre's going to need his own episode or two. Yes, he definitely needs an episode. <laughs> so we've got a lot of exciting stuff coming up, but bear with us on on the uh, jumping around because there's there's a lot to cover. And, you know, I mean, how many episodes can we really do in a year? I'm saying ep- our season one, we might get 40, 50. I mean, we'll try. We, we didn't really, you know, we started a few months in. We could try our best here, but, uh, you know, for, we're, we're planning for four episodes a month, but we're going to need some time off. So we might not even make it to 40. I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. All I'm doing is answering your questions. So, and I have to, <laughs> I have to go through my own brain and dig out 50 years of, oh, what did happen? And when did that happen? I know. Oh my God. And when I get my diaries, then I'm going to go, oh Jesus, I, I'm sorry. I, I misinformed you about yeah. that. You know, I, and that's an interesting point because I have had a feeling for, since we started this, I've had a feeling that we're going to have to do retractions <laughs> later on. Not retractions. We're going to have to do, we'll have to go back and say, hey, you know how we said this in episode yeah, yeah, know, well, four? It, well, actually this happened after that. Yes. And I don't know if we said this or not. I guess we did in the very first introductions, but these are my cathartic ways of getting back to the real story, if you will. I start. I wrote my books based on reading other people's accounts of what went on who weren't there, who didn't know what they were talking about. And it angered me to the point of, I want to tell my own story. I want to tell this story the way it should be told, the way it really happened. Right. Now, because the era of all this, there were no cell phones, there were no computers, I had to drive to their houses or go to the office and use the telephone and call them. And they had to be home for me to get through to them because they didn't have the hip answering service that I had. They didn't want that because they didn't want to be reached when they weren't by their phone. They didn't want to know. And I'm sure today, those that are still with us have a cell phone and they're on it constantly. But in those days, uh uh-uh, didn't exist. And you had to do with what you had to do. So some of the stuff gets lost in the fact that instant communication wasn't available then. Well, yeah. And also, you're not able to, like, trace it back. Like, when I'm on a tour, I can look at my phone and see a picture and it gives me the date that I took that photo. Yeah. So I can be like, oh, yeah, we were in Spain doing that show on that day. I know the exact day and it's on my phone and it's going to be there forever because I'm, you know, synced to the cloud. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so in a cloudless sky. <laughs> in a cloudless sky with no cell phones even and no computers and having to find a payphone that actually worked to call somebody. And you have to have the numbers with you, which means you have that four pound book with all the numbers in it, which I still use because I still go back to that book when I need to find somebody because that book has it written down. Whereas I've lost in the last few years, maybe four cell phones that have just died. And when they die, they take all their information with them. And how many people really know? those numbers that they call all the time or do they trust their phone to do it for I don't them? even know my I don't Of course I don't even know your phone number No I don't I don't know yours <laughs> I don't know yours either <laughs> my, okay. my phone does that. <laughs> Yeah exactly but if your phone died you don't know my number Yeah and I don't know your number if my phone died same thing Right. Same issue. And that's a bad thing in many ways. But you know all of my phone numbers are written down in a book because that's my habit Sure 
And the diaries, when I find them... I know where they are. We just have to go dig them out. When I find them and when I start looking at them, I'm the one that can translate them. Because I wrote a lot of weird shit in my diaries that <laughs> I'm the only one that knows what it means. Yes. Okay. So we won't be posting any, any uh, diary... No, you're not getting that. My but, diaries actually have the real dates that we worked. You're not going to get, we're not going to be posting like a uh, photocopied version of the diary no. online for download because you wouldn't understand it anyway. But we are going to have some pretty cool stuff up on the web store, which is in the works and that will be available very soon. Uh, we're just, we're just working out some details on how to set yeah. that all up properly. But anyways, uh, yeah, we're running a little bit long here, and uh, and we got a lot to cover with Kevin Kelly coming up, and and Graham obviously enter Graham Parsons everybody, uh, which will be two episodes from now. But uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. See you, folks. Music for the show has been provided by the very talented Patrick Lines and Clayton Lithicum, and our editor is Yikang Yang. 